Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I'm your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe and the greatest living American writer. You can find us at www.bookandfilmglobe.com for all your coverage of the best in books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have great podcast news for you this week. Our show is now charting on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We are now officially popular or semi-popular, and I thank you all for giving us a listen each and every episode. Because of that, we're going to stop one of my favorite features, the using of popular songs from various eras, because that can get expensive, and once you're in the spotlight, then music publishers spotlight you, and I want the show to keep going. I like songs, but I can just listen to them on my own time, as can you. And right now, you can listen to this podcast. I'm going to start off this week with a little bit of a political rant. Um, we published a piece, I published a piece this week about a, a letter that some quote-unquote literary professionals wrote to Penguin Random House. And I say literary professionals, I mean sort of middle management, yeah, publishing houses, copy editors, some authors, most of whom I hadn't heard of, although Lee Child, the author of the Jack Reacher series, did sign this Petition, and then also other members of the literary community. They signed a petition calling upon Penguin Random House to rescind a $2 million book contract for Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Now, you could argue that maybe a publishing house shouldn't be giving a big book contract to a sitting Supreme Court Justice because there might be like an antitrust case or something like that that would come before the court and that might bias the judge. But that's not the way things work in America. Instead, they're mad because um, Amy Coney Barrett is... Uh, pro-life and was a chief driver behind Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, which was the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. And most of the literary community, so-called literary community, is pro-choice. Um, they they are citing something called duty of care, which uh, comes from a speech, a TED Talk, given by a British film producer named David Putman, Putnam, not Putman, Putnam, and he says that uh, it is the duty of um, people who believe in freedom of speech to balance social and ethical responsibilities, wider morals and social responsibilities, he says, with uh, the value of freedom of speech. And so basically these uh, signers are accusing Penguin Random House of using free speech, misusing free speech, to destroy our rights. So they say we, the undersided, made the decision to stand by our duty of care while upholding freedom of speech. But they're not upholding freedom of speech. They are asking a publishing house to rescind a book by a significant historical figure. And I don't know, to me, calling the publication of a book, any book, except for possibly Mein Kampf, and even that gets published, a violation of human rights. You know, that's just insane. And the people who signed this uh, sorry excuse for an undergraduate protest letter uh, just need to understand that their arguments are faulty, their logic is nonsensical and history will prove them wrong. They're on the wrong side of the First Amendment, unlike abortion. I'm pro-choice personally. A lot of people I know consider the Dobbs decision an act of judicial malfeasance on par with the Dred Scott decision. Uh, you know, that's a legitimate political point of view to take. It's one that I take, but it's also legitimate to take the other political point of view. You know, this is a debate. This is not, um, this is not um, I don't know, fascism versus versus freedom. If you, my duty of care, as I say it, is upholding freedom of speech in all its forms. And if you're a writer who signed this statement, consider what you're saying if the world you want to see comes to pass. Someday someone might invoke, quote, duty of care 
to censor your own words. So I'm going to say this in as plain and uncensored language as possible. If Random House gives into the demands, which they won't, uh, all is lost. They are just wrong. They're wrong, wrong, wrong. I'm tired of writers and people who say they defend freedom of speech, doing things that are very anti-freedom of speech. You need to be consistent in these things. That's all. We're going to stand up for that time and again, no matter what someone's political point of view on Book and Film Below, we stand for freedom of speech, freedom to express, freedom to publish. We'll be right back. We're going to talk to contributor Rachel Llewellyn about Dairy Girls, the uh, popular show on, on Netflix, the Irish show, which has had, it is to my mind, a somewhat controversial or at least annoying ending. We're also going to talk to film critic Stephen Garrett about two movies that are out now, Armageddon Time and Triangle of Sadness for Art House this week. And we're also going to have a special interview with Margot Donahue, a writer and podcaster who wrote a book about a movie filmed in Brooklyn that we like a lot here. So we have a great show for you this week. And we will talk to Rachel Llewellyn right after this self-produced musical instrument. So I was fairly excited. I don't know if excited is the right word, but I was looking forward to a third season of Dairy Girls, the Irish sitcom uh, that's been airing stateside on Netflix. It's a show about a bunch of teenagers in the 90s during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. They live in Derry, as as is the um, as goes the title of the show. And season three came about, and, you know, I thought it was pretty good. There were some nice comic payoffs in some of the episodes, and then... There is this cameo appearance at the at the end, not during the show. The, the show featured a cameo by Liam Neeson that was pretty good, but like the, the cameo at the very last scene that features uh, Chelsea Clinton in the present day. The, the Dairy Girl send Chelsea Clinton a letter back in, in, in season two, and this season she received it. And so the very last shot we get at the show that had been delighting people for years was of Chelsea Clinton reading a letter from the Dairy Girls. And I thought it was a huge clunker. Really annoying, and I wrote a piece about it on the site. And now our contributor, Rachel Llewellyn, is here to uh, pick apart the final season of Dairy Girls with me. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, always a pleasure. So you um, you watched Dairy Girls in its entirety. I, I, you liked the final season even less than I did, I think. Yes, I was a bit disenchanted, Neil. It, you know, you, you don't see a lot of these Irish shows on these big platforms, especially not telling these kinds of like, you know, these really bright, sharp, tender, but at the same time, pretty grounded stories. So the show, you know, it's to some degree kind of an analog of that, the group of main characters itself in terms of, it's just a sort of quirky kind of plucky underdog, just trying to grow and figure itself out. And I agree with you that season three really under delivered. Um, you know, like you mentioned in your, well, I'm saying, I felt like it was a little high on its own supply, you know, it was super, it got super popular. And then the season, there were lots of slow motion montages of the girls walking into rooms and stuff. <laughs> totally agree. I feel like it really tried to cram in too many, you know, big elements and it leaned on these, you know, these bigger, but less spontaneous riffs of a lot of the same tropes that made seasons one and two. So loved, you know, the sister Michael's, sarcasm these really touching dance numbers you know madcap capers but in season three the dance numbers are these like fully choreographed flash mobs 
you know, the whole like nuns doing normal things gag gets pretty juiced up to where Sister Michael is now like driving a DeLorean for some reason. Yeah, that was weird. Like, yeah. Was, again, like it was, there, there was, a, you know, the show had the good graces to call it quits after three seasons because there were, there was, there were, if they weren't jumping the shark, they were certainly like revving up the speedboat to do so. <laughs> they're, they're, and also the fact that like, you know, this is the third season of Dairy Girls, but it took place, you know, the filming took place over five or six years. And let's face mm-hmm. it, those are not teenagers playing teenagers anymore. <laughs> no, it's it's been three years since season two was filmed. And you can tell the actors have aged noticeably, you know, 90210 syndrome. And it might not matter if it was a drama, but when the characters and storylines are written to be so goofy and adolescent, it is a little jarring. Um, but that, I mean, you can't really avoid that. I, I do feel like they wedged in several big plot points just because they seemed like they were running out of ways to write the characters. So they were just, you know, sort of splashing in a few crises to add some depth. Right. Like in the final episode, we're like, oh, Michelle's brother is in jail for killing someone during the troubles. I'm like, oh, <laughs> maybe they, maybe they could have mentioned that a couple of years ago. So it would have given that character more depth than, right. you know, they, they, they institute some kind of like, will they, won't they romance like right at the end. Like, right. Oh, Okay, ladies. I'd just like to ask you a few questions. Nice uniform. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Well, now, Michelle. Okay, sir. I would just like to state for the tape. There is no tape. That we are completely and totally innocent, and this is a horrific miscarriage of justice. Grant. Excuse me? Here's Proverad, girls. I'm actually a boy. Okay, love. We've had several reports of suspicious activity on the grounds of Our Lady Immaculate College this evening. Following up on that lead, we discover you five on the premises, that the locks of the side door have been forced and the alarm system deactivated. Now, we can't get hold of the headmistress, one Sister George Michael. George Michael? But the caretaker has informed us that a substantial amount of computer equipment seems to have vanished. We didn't take it. What were you doing on the grounds, girls? We went there too. We thought that we could. We were just trying to. Break them. We would like to speak to a solicitor, please. All in good time. Because the, the kids were basically just kind of going about their business, not really having any motivations other than being kids. And, you know, and if there were any, like, overarching plots it was the adults who were having them um and i don't know i it was not it wasn't great <laughs> you know it was not great again there were there were a couple episodes where there were some nice you know nice payoffs like they go and they to like clean out that house in, in donegal and it turns out they break into the wrong house that was kind of funny and you know there were a few a few other moments where it was like oh okay that's that's kind of a nice comic twist um but overall it was it was, it was i thought it was kind of a mess but but really, to me, what really pushed it over the edge was the Chelsea Clinton cameo. I don't know what you thought about that. Well, I, I, I was didn't really have any feelings about it one way or the other. I know a lot of people really disliked it. Um, they found it pretty kind of jarring to build up to this crucial vote, and then you see like the Grandpa Joe holding the youngest, you know, Quinn toddler's hand, and they're kind of skipping off into this peaceful new Ireland, and then bammo, you know, just jumping forward and this totally random cameo. So Twitter was all, you know, a fire of this cameo and 
you know, Decider was writing about how off-putting the whole timing was, and fans were saying, well, they should have thrown it at the end of season two when Bill Clinton came to speak in Belfast when they originally set it off. But you wrote a whole article about, like, why the writer and creator Lisa McGee was so excited to work their first starter into the script and why the Clintons were such a big deal in Ireland. Yeah, well, you know, I put I put something up complaining on Facebook about it, and I, I guess I have an Irish friend. I didn't know he was Irish. Um, <laughs> But, uh, I mean, it just shows you how well I know the people on my Facebook feed. But, you know, he was like, the Clintons are very important. You know, we, we consider Bill Clinton to be a national hero, and Chelsea Clinton, by association, is a national hero. You'll never understand how important the Clintons are to Irish people, and the, including her in the show, made sense from an Irish perspective. You know, then the good thing about Dairy Girls was that it never um, really kowtowed to uh, other people's impressions of Ireland and the Troubles. I, I, I appreciated that, you know, that perspective um, that, you know, it like to, to the Irish, like Chelsea Clinton, who is, you know, sort of a, a joke character to most Americans. Um, let's face it, you know, it, or, you know, like most presidential uh, children um, is considered a, you know, a heroic figure. So I appreciated that. And I understood yeah. that. And it was nice to have that mm. perspective. It, it was nice. I mean, you know, Clinton was one of the first American politicians who really supported Ireland, and he he upended uh, many, many decades of British involvement and oversight on American policy towards the UK. And that was important, you know, to the Northern Irish lobby, who was really kind of looking for peace. And Like Reagan had, you know, close ties through Thatcher, you know, they were thick as thieves, and like Bush didn't care. But, you know, Clinton really sort of overturned a lot of that and, you know, the, the Northern Irish initiatives. And Hillary did, too. She was involved. She gave a lot of voice to the women's issues of the time. So they love her, too. You notice in the, I think the last episode, second to last, Aaron is wearing, like, this purple pantsuit. It totally reminds me of Hillary Clinton. I'm wondering if that sure. was a nod to her. <laughs> I'm not dismissing Bill Clinton's diplomacy right. in the 1990s, you know, <laughs> For me, the problem was a narrative choice. Like what I wanted from mm. the show, if it, the, first of all, the ending at the vote was perfect. Right. Uh, uh, but if you're going to flash forward, show me the Dairy Girls as grownups, you know, doing, <laughs> right. doing you know, show me where, where they are now. Cause I would like to know, you know, I don't, right. I know, where, I know where Chelsea Clinton is pretty much yeah. or not a hundred percent. I don't. I don't know exactly where she is now. Thank God, you know it's like. One of my <laughs> but like, well, that's that's what I liked about the show in general. You know, was that they kind of rejected that the, all the historicity of all these big, you know, sweeping events that were going on in in terms of just serving the story of the girls' growth. I mean, all of these big sweeping things are going on, but you know, they don't get swept up in these larger sort of monolithic themes. It's all sort of turned to their personal, these really intimate narratives. That's what I liked about the story, but. You know, McGee kind of had to wrap it up with the larger events of the time. So the last episode's pretty heavy about that whole context. But um, I agree. I should have just cut when Grandpa left with the kiddo. Yeah, that would have been, I was moved. I was like literally moved, a little, little choked up there. You know, like, oh, they did it. They found that Ireland found peace. And here's yeah. Chelsea Clinton living in <laughs> New York City, in a nice townhome in New York City. And so, you know, to me, like it reduced these these girls who we got, we, and girls and boy, you know, we got so invested in, it reduced them to being like footnotes. Like, oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that clever? Look at those cute kids sending me that note. But I'm still, in, I'm the important one here. 
You know, it, right. It, I agree. It diminished them and it diminished the show in my mind. I was, I was disappointed. I agree. Uh, it was pretty, I'm sure that the, uh, you know, Irish folks watching would get the reference and maybe have a little more depth of appreciation, but Americans watching that without that historical context would understandably be a little baffled and, you know, think it's a little random, which it's interesting to me how two different, you know, groups can watch the same piece of entertainment and get something totally different out of it. Let's see what, I wonder what would have happened if it had been a show where a bunch of kids sent a letter to Baron Trump. You know, I wonder, I wonder how much, how, how delighted people would have been then, you know, or, uh, or, or I, I'm or, or someone like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh man. I would have liked to have seen that. It was a little awkward, but you know, it kind of, it speaks a little bit to their audience as well. I'm sure a lot of, uh, you know, liberal folks watching, watching that didn't mind the reference either. Did Amy Carter get a letter? I don't know. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. What yeah. about Trish Nixon? Is she still around? <laughs> All right. Yeah. Rachel Llewellyn, that's Dairy Girls. It's a wrap. All right. Thanks, Neil, for having me. Talk to you next time. Our special guest on the show this week is Margot Donahue. She is a writer and a podcaster. She has three podcasts. Um, which are, are no, in no way competitive with this one. One is called Book Versus Movie, another which, where she compares, with her co-host, she compares the book version of a, of a narrative versus the film version of a narrative. Sometimes there are also magazine articles or whatnot, but that's the general concept. There's also a podcast called What a Creep, and then there's another movie podcast she does called Dorking Out. Uh, we're talking to her because she wrote a book called Filmed in Brooklyn, which is, you know, it's about movies set and made in Brooklyn. And, uh, and we have featured an interview with her on the site by Elizabeth Hazard, one of our frequent contributors. And I enjoyed the interview and I enjoy Brooklyn and I enjoy films. And I thought, well, let's just, let's do it again. Let's talk to Margot Donahue uh, in person. Well, or at least via our Zencaster app. And she's here now talking with me. Hello, Margot. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Yes, my pleasure. So yeah, so filmed in Brooklyn. Um, like I said, you know, I'm I, I'm not I've never been a Brooklyn resident, but I've spent uh, a, I've had many visits to Brooklyn, and I and I love movies set in Brooklyn. And Brooklyn is like the um, it's like the perfect set for uh, you know an urban American movie. It's it's a very cinematic neighborhood, and you highlight a bunch of your favorites. Uh, in the interview, I wanted to start off by talking about one of my favorite scenes and one of everyone's favorite scenes in all of film, the, the car chase from The French Connection. Yes. Um, yes. So so that is set. What part of Brooklyn did, did director William Friedkin set that in? It's part Bensonhurst and part Sheepshead Bay. It's a, It goes through a few different neighborhoods because it's, it's traveling with a train, with an L train that's going through. And it's, it's pretty exciting. He didn't, he, he said he didn't get permits. The thing is, William Friedkin is the director and he tends to bend the truth. We could say politely. He likes to, you know, spin a yarn, as they say. But he, he did get permits, you know, with an asterisk, but he, 
he always liked to, t- you know, push things as much as he possibly could. And that's what he definitely did when he was pushing through Brooklyn. And much of that neighborhood looks exactly the same. And it's very close to the neighborhood where Saturday Night Fever was filmed. Yeah, no, what I love about, I mean, it is a car chase scene, but there's also a fairly substantial segment of that scene where uh, Popeye Doyle, played by Gene Hackman, is chasing his 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 quarry, you know, on foot as well. Mm-hmm. There's, it's a mix, right? And, and there's just, there, I, I, it just, it's very evocative. You could see that happening today. Yes, and also, you know, spoiler, because it's used on the poster to sell the movie, he shoots the man in the back. That's his, you know, who he's chasing, and it's you're, it's not legal to do that, and it was considered very provocative for the time, and the and they asked the person that was based on the character, you know, was he offended by that? He goes, no, I think it's great. <laughs> he said, I probably would have done that. So it's part of the film. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really does feel like it's taking place in real time. I mean, there's no way you could use actors for all of those moments. I mean, it, it, no. it, it feels like it's taking place in a neighborhood. Yes, yes. And, I mean, he, there's a scene where he, it looks like they're almost – hitting a woman that's pushing a baby carriage, but that's actually a trick shot. They're used, they use several different cars to make that happen, but there are a lot of people who are did, inadvertently didn't know what they were doing that day and are in that shot. All right, so you mentioned Saturday Night Fever uh, when we were talking, and you talk about it in the piece as well. I mean, that is also uh, a quintessentially um, Brooklyn film and it's, it's mostly set in, in bay ridge right it's not like that's not like a park slope movie or anything no no no. It, it's bay ridge and bensonhurst and the neighborhood where he lives where the, tony our, our lead lead lives that house remains the same and the neighborhood looks the same and it's like a tutor home and it's very peace peaceful and very quiet and beautiful the place where he got his pizza is still there lenny's pizza you can still get a pie there get a slice eat two at once like he does if you'd like. The disco, however, it's on 8th Avenue, is now a totally Chinese neighborhood. It was an Italian neighborhood at the time, Italian-American neighborhood. Now it's completely Chinese, and it's been changing businesses over the years, and now you just see signs in Chinese everywhere. I take it it's not a Chinese disco. No, sir. No, it's all business. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, that that just represents uh, you know a shift um, in, in demographics, sure. and also like there's there just aren't discos anymore. No. Um, yeah, but, that, but 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 you know that there's that o- opening. Um, isn't the opening scene where where uh, you know Travolta is just kind of sauntering down the street to staying alive? I mean, it's just such a Brooklyn vibe, right? It's so beautiful, and he goes yeah right by Lenny's Pizzeria, and and part of that also it's is Standin. That scene where he lifts his his foot and you see his his boots and his you know flare jeans and the black boots that's actually the stand-in, and then it goes back to John Travolta. And the funny thing is that's one of the first things they shot for the movie. And at the time, it was in March of '77. They didn't have a lot of money invested in the film. They didn't have it set up properly. It was sort of a fly-by-night production. They kind of threw it all together at the last minute. And they could barely use any sound that was recorded outside because there were thousands and thousands of fans everywhere. So if you can imagine, like, we hear the Bee Gees and just see him walking, but the actual footage, it's just, it was unusable because it was so loud with screaming kids. 
fans of John Travolta's? Oh yeah, because Welcome Back, Cotter was a huge hit at the time. Okay, yeah, I was I was thinking like that was before he was that because Saturday Night Fever was his first big movie role. But it is true that he did have a he had a he was kind of a sitcom craze. People don't not everyone uh, remembers that. I mean, I do. Yeah, well, but, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a seventies kid, so yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, but speaking of pizza, you can't really talk about pizza in movies in Brooklyn without talking about Sal's Pizzeria um, from Do the Right Thing. And, you know, you obviously, obviously, like, you know, if you want to talk about certain areas of Brooklyn, uh, you, you Bed-Stuy, Fort Greene, and so on, you can't real, you can't talk about films in Brooklyn without talking about Spike Lee. Right. He's sort of the king of Brooklyn. And certainly the king of independent cinema in Brooklyn. He put that on the map. Bed-Stuy is a beautiful place to film. They have gorgeous brownstones there. He had transformed an entire block to be the set for an entire summer, and it's now Do the Right Thing way there in Bed-Stuy. Sal's Pizzeria and the Korean Deli that were created as centerpieces for the movie, uh, they don't exist there anymore. They were just created for the movie, What's interesting is that, and this is sort of a spoiler, but, at, you know, Sal Pizzeria, it's a place, it's a hotbed place. Everybody goes there for the pizza, and it's run by Danny Aiello, and it's Italian-Americans, but it's a black community that pays for the pizza. And there is a very totemistic scene where everybody is fighting, and Spike Lee's character throws a garbage can through the window of Sal's Pizzeria because of the murder of Radio Rakim and starts this riot that happens. And it was very- I think it's safe, I think it's safe to uh, spoil- Yeah, yeah, some people get so upset, I know. Most I have... people have seen it by now, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, I know that, and that, I, that, but that scene to me, and also this, I, I, I um, highlighted this scene um, on the site, there's that early scene in the movie where, you know, it's a very, very hot day in Brooklyn do the right thing and there's a scene where like on the block where all the kids are sort of playing in the fire hydrant i just, I just love that scene because it's it feels so real you know and those are obviously real kids enjoying the water right yeah it's it's a super hot day it's the hottest day of the week of the year and it's always interesting i, I love that i found an interview with spike lee on criterion where he said he was doing a retrospective 30 years later on the movie and he had said that everybody always asks asks him why his character throws the trash can and he says no one ever asks him why did the cops kill Radio Rahim and it still doesn't change all these years later and it's still very it pretty obvious why he threw the trash can right right <laughs> I mean, exactly like yeah. he reached his breaking point right right you know? yeah it's it's still very potent and that and the first few minutes of that movie with the opening credits and Rosie Perez dancing is still just electrifying. Uh, that's just one of the great American movies. There's no question about it. It, it, it remains fresh to this day. And he, you know, he uses Brooklyn really well in his other movies, well in like Jungle Fever and She's Gotta Have It. I'm trying to think of other, other movies that he were, he, he sort of starts branching out after that and actually films in Manhattan of all, God forbid of all places. But, uh, but, you know, especially his early movies, he's just, he's just so, it's just, he's to Brooklyn what Woody Allen is to Manhattan, basically. Exactly. I feel mind. the same way. Yeah. All right. So I want to talk before we go about um, a couple of movies that you highlighted. I was, I was glad you brought these up, actually, because, you know, this is the sort of um, indie guy from the 90s in me um, really holds these, these movies um, in high regard. They're Wayne Wang's uh, Smoke Shop movies, Smoke. 
and Blue in the Face, which he uh, which were written by Paul Auster. I mean, those are so, to me, those are the movies that just exemplify the Brooklyn I knew back in the days when I was young and thought I was cool, you know? Same. I live not so far away, and I visit them quite a bit. That's in Windsor Terrace. And it's sad that the businesses on that corner keep changing. You know, they, they, they can't seem to keep it together. I mean, there's a place called Patty's Bakery that's there now, and it's right across the street from Farrell's, uh, the, the bar, the saloon, the Farrell's place. I love those movies. They're very weird and different, and they just kind of caught on in the summer of 95, I believe it was. They were released within a few weeks of each other. There's a lot of improv going on. The first movie has a lot of story to it, and they go a little bit around Brooklyn to different places. The second one is just a bunch of celebrities showing up and then just doing wacky skits, basically. Yeah, very 90s celebrities. You know, Jim Jarmusch, Lou Reed, Harvey Keitel. I mean, it's just so, you know, Madonna. Madonna, Roseanne. (laughs) I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah, Michael J. Fox does a thing. I mean, it's Giancarlo Esposito. It's so many people. And it's really, it's amazing. And that RuPaul does, leads a dance outside that store. It's just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and you know, it's funny you should mention it because I, I, um, I know that neighborhood. I, I, that's the neighborhood. I, I had friends who lived there. So I would stay there when I would visit Brooklyn. And I know Farrell's and I know Patty's Bakery. And I'm not, and I'm not from New York. You right. know, it's just like, so that's a neighborhood that to me, you know, it just, exemplifies Brooklyn because it, you know it's it's diverse it's weird it's it's not too um not very corporate you know and uh and that to me you know Brooklyn was just especially like in its I don't know if it's in its heyday now I don't I don't know anymore but uh <laughs> you know certainly in the ni- in the 90s you know for for those of us who consider ourselves you know aficionados of indie culture like you know Brooklyn was was the place yeah, it was a place where, you know, there was a thing called, I remember when I first moved to Brooklyn was in the mid-90s, and I was at my first job, and there was this terribly snobby girl. I was working at a, at a book publishing company, and she was talking about, about bridge and tunnel people and how, because she lived in the village, and she just hated bridge and tunnel people. They came to, to her, her neighborhood and blah, blah, blah. And I just innocently asked, I was like, well, who are bridge and tunnel people? And she's like, oh, people from Brooklyn and Long Island and blah, 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 blah. I'm originally from Long Island, and I was living in Brooklyn. And I said, well, where are you from? She's like, oh, Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> and I'm like, well, who the I, hell are you? I, was, I, was the, I, I thought Bridge and Tunnel people were New Jersey. Right. No, no, no. She was very specifically like, it's anybody that's just has to like get into Manhattan. So there is this idea that Brooklyn was a place to escape. Like Manhattan was where you would go to get your culture. And Brooklyn was a place where it had cheaper rents. But then when we were discovering it in the 90s, there was this turnaround. Now Brooklyn's way more expensive than Manhattan. Right. And way trendier mm-hmm. and, and, and way, more, uh, way more elite in a way. And livable, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would live there if I lived in New York, which I, you know, I live in Austin, Texas, which is the Brooklyn of Texas. Yes, I it guess. is. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, Pretty much, I, I'm I'm always drawn to those kinds of places. Um, not as many good Austin movies. There's sort of we have sort of one director who does it. And, yes. You know, yes. Richard. We Richard Linklater, and then and then that's then that's about it. Um, well, anyway, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be doing a filmed in Austin book anytime soon. But filmed <laughs> in Brooklyn, 
is now available um, everywhere books are sold. And I, I imagine it's quite available in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. I have some signed copies. There's at the Barnes & Noble in Park Slope, and then there's Books Are Magic and on Smith Street. But yeah, get go to your local independent sellers if you're here in Brooklyn. That would be amazing. All right, Margo Donahue, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for talking to us both in print and on our award-winning, soon-to-be award-winning podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, Margo, before we turn you loose in Brooklyn for the day, do you have anything you want to plug for us? Yeah, please follow me on uh, social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Brooklyn Fitchick. My site is brooklynfitchick.com, and I am on TikTok at Margo Donahue. All right, Margo Donahue, thanks so much. Thank you. The United States stands for an idea whose time is now. Ronald Reagan will win tonight. What a schmuck. <laughs> I think I want to be an artist when I grow up. You're going to be an artist if you want to be. Nothing's going to stop you. You're going to college. You'll have dinner with kings if he plays his cards right. Mm -hmm. I really like your stickers. My stepbrother gave them to me. He's in the Air Force. That's so cool. <laughs> You're not to associate with him again. What do you mean? Why? I think you know what I mean. It's time to talk about movies with Stephen Garrett on a segment that I like to call Let's Talk About Movies with Stephen Garrett. A theme song <laughs> is coming soon. It really is. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Hello. So we're going to Art House this week. We're taking a little break from mainstream Hollywood releases, and we're going to talk about Two movies that you saw, La Di Da, at the Cannes Film Festival for the first time, and one of them that I saw, as is my want, at the Alamo Draft House Lakeline Mall, uh, just last week. Anyway, nice. uh, we're going to start with the one I haven't seen, which is Armageddon Time, the new movie from director James Gray, who most recently made the adaptation of David Grant's nonfiction book, The Lost City of Z. Armageddon Time is not an adaptation, it's a sort of an autobiographical, semi-autobiographical film about the early 80s set in Queens, and uh, sort of a, uh, it takes place in the environs of a middle-class-ish Jewish family, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct, yes, yes. Okay. Probably, so that, it's, basically, it follows this little kid who's second-generation um, Jewish immigrant. Uh, his grandfather uh, came from Ukraine, fled. His grandparents fled Ukraine and the Cossacks. And uh, his grandmother is dead. His grandfather, who's played by Anthony Hopkins, is kind of on the scene. Um, but yeah, they're very much that American dream where, you know, anything can happen if you work hard. Um, I think uh, his father, who's played by Jeremy Strong, is, is kind of like a repairman. So they have a very middle class life, but they're, they're constantly striving. Um, Paul's got an older brother who's in a private school, which plays an important role in the kind of dynamics here. And, and Paul's uh, at a public school and he kind of, he gets into trouble. His his mom is Anne Hathaway and she's like on the PTA board and she wants to, you know, be more involved in the community, but they're, they're, they're definitely strivers. And um, this movie is very much about that. Like how do you make it uh, in Reagan's America, so to speak, or on the cusp of Reagan's America. The movie takes place in the fall of 1980, like September, October, November. It, it's all in the fall there. Um, right. They call it Armageddon time, but it's not like it's the day after or threads or whatever. No. Like, it's no. just 
that's just kind I of wish. what like scared liberals called the ascension of Ronald Reagan back in the day. Right, exactly. Which was something Reagan actually clearly uh, fed into because he uses Armageddon in a speech uh, that they're all watching at, at one point in the in the film. So um, it is, and and there's a Clash song called Armageddon Time that they play in the film. So it, it very, I mean, it definitely captures that that time in terms of that anxiety. But it's very much about also race relations. Um, Paul has an African American friend named Johnny who's constantly get into trouble, but he also like, you know, introduces him to pod and gets them to kind of cut out of a school trip to the Guggenheim to go down to Colony Records and get like Sugar Hill Gang. Um, what, a, what a terrible, so, what a terrible friend introducing him to pod and hip hop. My God, what a monster. Yeah, I know. How dare he? Well, of course, and that's the point is that, you know, the, uh, you know, this, uh, they call, I think his teacher at one point kind of mutters uh, that his friend Johnny's an animal, you know. Johnny comes, you know, he's, I think he's being raised by his grandmother and they have a fight. He lives in, in Paul's backyard in a, in a clubhouse there for a while. Um, and they both dream of like running away to Florida uh, and being artists. And uh, they make, they hatch a scheme to like steal it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Paul is very gifted, uh, uh, like artist and you know, like drawing. He's, he's very good at drawing. And his uh, grandfather really supports him in that, wants him to be an artist. Meanwhile, his father, Jeremy Strong, is like, yeah, you're full of pipe dreams. You know, uh, art, is, art is ridiculous. You got to know how to fix things and you should be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. You should better yourselves, you know. Uh, grandfather's a little more idealistic and he, a little more moralistic because he literally has seen the worst and the best of humanity in his life. Whereas Jeremy Strong, I think, has seen that father, his father, Paul's father, has seen uh more of a society where you know uh things are rigged the rich always win the poor always get knocked down and you got to work within the system and you got to cut corners on your own moral beliefs in order to do that you know to get ahead I mean, it's, it's okay if you throw somebody under the like bus a, kind of thing sounds like a fairly effective kitchen sink drama you know that's not what i associate james gray with the lost city of z was a sort of a almost like a like a, a anti-indiana jones action adventure movie um, that I would have liked uh, if it had not been for the overwhelmingly annoying screen presence of Charlie. <laughs> Charlie, yeah, I like Hunnam. I, I didn't like. I like that movie a lot. I like James Gray. I gotta say, I was not a big fan of his early on in his career. Little Odessa and The Yards. I was not crazy about uh, We Own the Night. I thought it was a little kind of overblown. Um, but I feel like he kind of hit his stride for me uh, with Two Lovers, which was a wonderful romance with Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, and, um, God, what was her name? Vanessa something or other. And, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is a love triangle, um, where he really started to explore, uh, and then after that, uh, the immigrant, which of course is, you know, about like a, like very much, a uh, an Ellis Island sort of story, uh, about coming to America. So, um, and then Lost City of Z, these are a lot of stories about what it is to be a man, what it is to find love, what it is to, to find your identity in America specifically, um, Lost City of Z, of course, is, is more British, but there is that sense of, of uh, facing your fears and going into the unknown and maybe even getting lost in the jungle, sort of, you know, to a certain extent. He did Ad Astra after that, which I loved, which was a space epic, which was kind of like daddy issues in space sort of thing with Brad Pitt. Oh, he made, Ad, he made Ad, Ad, Ad Astra or Ad Astra, the, the Brad Pitt crying astronaut movie. 
the uh, crying astronaut movie, which I like totally dug. I got into that crying. No, I was like, no, this well, is great. I, I, liked, I liked the moon chase scene with the dune buggy. Oh, it was great. Didn't you that like was, the wild baboons and the, the baboon yeah, attack? All right, I'll give you the baboon attack. There's some good stuff, dude. I know, but there's some crying. I don't like, cry, I don't like crying astronauts. There's astronauts. no crying in space. Astronauts should always be like, this is awesome, we're in space. Or they should be like scrambling to try to stay alive, like the guy on the Martian or the people in um, the Expanse or whatever. But they right. don't. They got to be no, no, can no, do and optimistic. No, no daddy issues in space. All right, regardless of the fact that I kind of despised James Gray's last two major movies. <laughs> I'm interested in seeing. I don't, I don't think you'll love this. I don't think you'll love this. Well, this is a very minor key coming of age film, you know? I'm a, I'm a Jew. I grew up in the 80s. You know, I had a dad who didn't want me to really, really didn't want me to be a writer, you know? So I kind of, I can kind of see it, but whatever. I, but it's also like playing where I live, you know, at a theater that I don't really want to go to. And I don't know. I'll get to it. Well, I think, I think what's interesting, just to, to uh, give you a few more points on the film before we move on. Uh, I think what's interesting is that like at one point about halfway through the movie, the, the kid, Paul, who's getting into trouble at public school. So the parents are like, fine, we'll send you to private school. He goes, he shows up. It's like his first day. He's in this private school. Everybody's in coat and tie and everything like all these other kids. He's in sixth grade. You know, that's how old he is. He bumps into the scary looking dude who totally looks like Fred Trump. And yes, the character is Fred Trump and he's there at the school, like trying to raise like money for the school or whatever. And then, you know, a little bit later in the film, his daughter, Mary Ann Trump, who's played by Jessica Chastain, pops up and gives a speech at the school. And she's like assistant attorney, you know, New York attorney general or whatever. Um, It is. uh, And these are just small little cameos, but you get this sense of, you know, kind of this is the, these are the, these are the seeds of uh, the MAGA world that we're going to enter into. And these are the seeds of, you know, this is, uh, you get the sense of the racism very clearly. It's a little too paint by number. It's a little too simplistic in terms of like, you have a black friend and he's not going to make it. You're the white boy. You need to keep striving no matter what it means. And then the grandfather is kind of the moral conscience, you know, treat your friends. Don't forget your friends, fight for what you believe in, that kind of thing. And that's basically the movie, you know. All right. I, yeah. I, I thought it was very touching, but I, I don't think it's, you know, up there with that Astra. <laughs> I mean, we'll <laughs> Which I love, which clearly you don't. So, you know. I don't like crying in space. All right. Um, no, hey, man. In space, no one can hear you cry. That's James Gray's Armageddon Time, which takes place in Queens, not in space. Let's talk about a movie that I, I did see and that I did review uh, on the site uh, recently. And that's Triangle of Sadness. The new Which you liked film. quite a lot. Yeah, kind of. With the, the new film from um, Swedish director Ruben Ostlund, who also, who most sort of famously, at least for American audiences, made the um, original Force Majeure, which was a um, kind of an uh, avalanche comedy, for lack of a better <laughs> set at a European ski resort. And they remade it in the States into a bad uh, movie starring Will Ferrell and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Um Regardless, so Force Majeure, I think, and, and and Triangle of Sadness have similar themes. You know, rich people go on vacation and uh, the forces of nature and of history and society kind of, you know, mock them at every turn. You know, this is about a, a, a movie about models, fashion models, a couple of fashion, hot fashion models who go on this luxury cruise because the woman, Yaya, 
and the couple is an Instagram influencer and she gets a free cruise. And so she brings her the less successful model boyfriend along with her <laughs> and they encounter a, a lot of um, rich assholes. I mean, these are people who, I mean, they're, you know, the, the Russian billionaire or multimillionaire literally, as he puts it, sells shit. He's a fertilizer magnet. Um, right. And then there's that British couple who make landmines and hand grenades and <laughs> yep. horrible, horrible, you know, hippo, you know, and they, and, and they don't, they, they, they have no idea. Um, and, and then the ship is sort of run by a captain who does, who I think is, he's a figurehead captain. He's a drunken Marxist played by very hilariously, I think, by Woody Harrelson, <laughs> who just, you know, who's, who gives a classic Woody Harrelson performance. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so there's a, I won't reveal how, but some of the cast ends up stranded on, on a, on a uncharted desert isle, a la Gilligan's Island. And then the, um, the sort of the real hero of the movie takes over this, um, Filipina quote unquote toilet maid named Abigail, who's played by the, uh, the Filipina actress, uh, Dolly De Leon, who's I think fantastic. Um, all right. So it's a two and a half hours of just, Capitalism is bad. Just hammering you yeah. over the head over and over, and over again, you know, with the, you know, and it's a relentless satire of the rich. And there's this extended scene featuring the most vomit you've seen since Monty Python's The Meaning of Life on screen. <laughs> right. And it's like, yeah. you know, look, try, this is a movie that won the Palm d'Or at Con. And you were, I don't know if you were there for that, for that 27 minute standing ovation but the idea, <laughs> the idea that like the euro film cognoscenti would would give a 27 minute standing ovation to a movie that basically says you're all shit is just hilarious to me um you know the movie itself i mean it's very it's well very well made and very technically skillful there's a lot of really crazy set pieces but i feel like it was like pretty self-admiring you know and, and i i it was like it was like gazing at itself like Yaya does in her phone. Right, right, exactly. I mean, like you're you're first of all, what's funny about Cannes is that it's very on brand for this glamorous like Riviera festival to celebrate, you know, these hard scrabble uh, lives that are depicted on film. So that you know they're like, well, you know, we know we're in touch with the pain of the world, and you know, we're not all caviar and champagne in our yachts, which they absolutely are, but they also they they really react well to movies of um, strife and class struggle. So this is like catnip for them. It was not surprising that we won. And I think people were thinking that it probably had the best chance of, of winning. But I think for, you know, from you speaking of your review, I was surprised that it had, you gave it four out of five stars. But when I read it, I it felt more like a three out of five star review, you know? Well, I just, um, it was very technically, you know, just three out of five stars to me is like, I mean, it's all semantics, but those are movies that are like flawed, <laughs> flawed, but entertaining, you know, maybe a little hacky. Um, you know, there's nothing hacky about Triangle of Sadness. I mean, it's extremely right. well made, extremely, you know, it's well constructed. It's, you know, it's well written. It's very well acted. You know, there's, it's, it's, it's quality down the line. It's just, it's just not, it's, it's something that you kind of, kind of admire from a distance, you know, like a model. But, but you, know, you can't, you can't, you know, that's not a movie that I, I love. Right. Well, I mean, for me, the key turn of phrase in your, in your uh, review is that it inspires more self-satisfaction than self-reflection, which I, I think is absolutely true. It's a very smug, 
uh, film in a lot of ways. And it, it, to me, seemed very basic and very kind of low-hanging fruit. You know, like, yes, let's, let's see all the billionaires vomit you know, for 15 minutes. Yeah, but I thought, I thought that the back third with the maid, you know, and the, the sort of uh, Lord of the Flies scenario that develops was, was kind yeah. of, was it more, much, was interesting, you know, it was kind of an interesting, more interesting, for sure. An interesting turn for it to take. And it's not one that was, um, that, that they talked, that they showed much in the preview. And so that, to me, that's what the movie is really about. And I, maybe they could have yeah. got, but a little, we, didn't, we didn't need 20 minutes of Carl and Yaya, like bantering in a hotel room. Um, I, I actually, I was about to say, I kind of love their, you know, this is at the beginning of the film, you see them fight over the, who's going to pay for the meal, which yeah. is very expensive. Yeah, and then we see them fighting in the elevator and then we see them fighting in the hotel room. And I, I kind of, that's very much his kind of like, you know, it reminded me of, of uh, the, you know, the good parts of uh, Force Majeure too, where he loves this kind of verbal cringe comedy where you're just seeing um, people fight about, you know, uh, either class stuff or, uh, battles of the sexes kind of um you know what the idea of being noble constantly is popping up like are you are you a coward are you craven are you a good-hearted person are you you know it's like i don't know it's interesting how he explores those things they're not they're not a very functional couple to say the least no Uh, you know i felt like i don't know if you're familiar with the hbo uh, series the white lotus uh, right you know which uh i think at least in the first season the second season is about to um drop on HBO as we're talking and we'll be, someone and I will talk about that after a couple episodes air but the first season takes place in Hawaii so it's not exactly like the sort of Euro colonialism this movie talks about but it's the similar themes you know rich white people go to a, a resort and they kind of treat Hawaii like occupied territory and all the hypocrisies are exposed and there's all kinds of scatological stuff but there was like a kind of a, a, a good humored warmth to a lot of that show and nuance right that was not in Triangle of Sadness, which is which very much feels like you're being lectured by an extremely clever undergraduate at all times. Right. About the most obvious class differences. Like we get it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, no, I mean it's it's never it's never not entertaining. I had a I had a great time seeing Triangle of Sadness. Uh, but I, I do agree with, with the points that you're making pretty much uniformly. Like I, I just wish it were a stronger, more nuanced movie that felt a little bit more original and surprising um and this just felt very schematic and i i felt i had seen variations of uh everything in that film at different times from different movies you know i wish that the movie had been as nuanced as our discussion of it Stephen. hey there you go there we go only i'm pretty self-satisfied about our conversation yeah i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna post a photo of myself uh here at the microphone on instagram <laughs> it plays well though it plays really well to a crowd and you know i i, I think like you said ruben oslin is a very talented filmmaker sure. um you know and uh he, his previous film the square actually also won the palm door so he got two in a row uh and that skewered the um the pretensions of basically the art world you know and museums and museum culture and curators and everything Mm. Um, and I felt that was a little more clever, maybe just because it was a more unfamiliar world for me so that, um, the, the different personas that populated it, um, were really delightful and absorbing for me to watch. Whereas seeing rich people stranded on an Island, I'm kind of like, like you said, I mean, like you kind of hinted, like it's very Gilligan's Island. And it's very, it's not for the it's very swept away. Yeah. It's not for the exactly. fearless crew, the movie would be lost. <laughs> It's a good time. It's a good time. I I agree. 
And it's always a good time talking to you, Stephen Garrett, about movies. Hey, hey We'll catch up to you soon. Okay, thanks. All right, thanks, Stephen Garrett. Always nice to talk to you about movies that are in the theaters, and even movies that aren't in the theaters, but I prefer movies in the theaters. I don't necessarily like to be next to people in movie theaters, but I like watching movies on big screen. And so do you, or you wouldn't be listening to the show or reading Book and Film World. Also, thanks to Margot Donahue for stopping in to talk to us about her book, Filmed in Brooklyn. Terrific book, and you should also listen to Margot's podcasts after ours. And Rachel Llewellyn for talking to me about Chelsea Clinton's absurd cameo, which, to my mind, sort of ruined the final season of The Delightful Dairy Girls. I am Neil Pollock. I am the greatest living American writer. I am the editor-in-chief of the now music-free, mostly music-free, Book and Film Globe, a podcast that charts now on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We're in our, almost at our 80th episode, and I'm so proud that we have worked very hard to come to this place. You can find the site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I thank you so much for reading the site and for listening to the show. And if Chelsea Clinton comes to your door, I don't know, give her a cookie or something, make her a cup of tea. But uh, don't turn her away, but, but tell her no more cameos. No more cameos, I'm pretty sure. That's enough. And whatever you do, please do not sign a letter asking a publisher to ban a book. It is wrong. Freedom of speech. Number one in my book. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. TheBookhouseMilburn.com. Bookhouse Milburn.com.